Good morning, everyone. My first question to you this morning is this. Who is your favorite author and why? Take a moment right now and think about who is your favorite author. What is it that they have written that has made them so dear to your heart? What is it about them? Is it the characters that they had developed? Is it the world that they created? Is it the plot lines that go in and out and twist and turn? What is it that makes them your favorite? As I look at the Old Testament, so much of it is just this interwoven story that I struggle to understand. It's a different world than the world that I live in. So it's constantly like me trying to go into this this story written by an ancient author, understand the characters and their movements, and try to put myself in their shoes. But that's incredibly hard. Last week, I told you a story. Last week, I wrote a story about a fictional family, a young man who was responsible for helping with the sacrifices. He would take the sheep and go with his father, and they would go to the tabernacle to make the sin offering for his dad. I told you this story because there's this barrier in between us and them. You see, when the author in the book of Hebrews writes about the sacrificial system and about how Jesus is far superior to that, For us to appreciate that, we need to understand the hopelessness in the sacrificial system. But we don't know that. Because we didn't live in that. So as we read that story last week, I hope that for a moment you were able to put yourself in the shoes of that young person. The hopelessness of taking a sheep, and then again later another one, and another one. Take them to the tabernacle. Watch the father place his hand on the sheep. Watch that transfer of guilt from him to the animal. The innocent animal, having done nothing wrong, handed to a priest. The smell of smoke and the smell of dead animal everywhere. And this priest takes the animal. And three, two, one, life is gone. Hopelessness. They would go home not feeling any different. Nothing had changed. Hopelessness. They would go home and just wait, wait for the moment they fell back into sin again and have to make their way one more time to the tabernacle. Hopelessness. A cycle that would repeat day after day, week after week, year after year, for thousands of years. A hopeless cycle. Now this morning as we step into this sermon, I want you to help me write the story because you can become the storyteller. This morning as we go into this, I want you to imagine a home being built, a house, a physical house under construction being put together. I want you to imagine that you're building it, that your life is the process of building this house, that you choose the foundation, you help construct the foundation, and then you begin to build the walls. What does your house look like? What would you put in your house that someone else might not? Would it be large or would it be small? What would it be made out of? Would the exterior have vinyl or stucco? What would your house look like? You see, the Hebrew people for 2,000 years were building their lives on a foundation that wasn't any good. 
If you were to look at their whole lives like a house being constructed, then the foundation it was built on was a shadow and a copy. The author of the book of Hebrews points us straight to that. You've been reading this with us. We're in the middle of chapter 10. We've come a long way through Hebrews. He keeps pointing out that what they had been founded on, the Old Testament with the Jewish Torah, the law, what it was all based around was a copy and a shadow and a preview. The priesthood was a preview of Jesus' priesthood. The tabernacle and temple were a preview of the sanctuary in heaven. The sheep and the bulls and the goats, the pigeons, they were all a preview of the lamb, Jesus, sacrificed for our sin. They were a copy. And for thousands of years, people built their lives on this copy. But it wasn't any good. It was not strong enough to save As a pastor, you wrestle with where your church is at. What are they going through? Because if we read the Bible to you in a way that's not relevant to you, in a way that doesn't meet you where you are, then you might not want God's word in your moment. Because you want it to do something. You want it to mean something. And this author is no different when he writes this letter to Hebrew people who are followers of Jesus, but they were halfway in between one foundation and the other. He has to meet them where they're at. They have grown up. They're surrounded by a community and a world built on this copy of a foundation. And they've almost got one foot on that foundation. Now they're trying to put one foot on Jesus. They're straddling this line and they can't do it. And the author says, you need to choose. You need to choose. Are you the kind that shrinks back or are you the kind that has faith and is saved? But you need to choose. We've already went through the first half of the book of Hebrews, chapters 1 and 2. Jesus brings a greater promise than any angel ever brought to the world. Chapters 3 and 4, Jesus is a greater Moses, a greater deliverer, a greater savior. He offers a greater salvation than Moses did, and he can actually get to the heart of our sin in a way that Moses, as a leader, was never able to. Chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus institutes a greater priesthood. He's a priesthood that will never end. He's a priest that can go right through the curtain to sit in the dwelling place of God greater than any high priest who's ever lived. And finally, chapters 8, 9, and 10. Jesus is the greater sacrifice. Jesus goes into the greater sanctuary. Jesus is able to meet all of our needs. He's the lamb. He's the spotless one. He goes into the true sanctuary in heaven. He's the sacrifice for our sin. This author deconstructs the entire foundation that the Hebrew people have lived on for 2,000 years. And he says, look at how Jesus completely replaces that. As a pastor, too, you always have this fear when you're preaching to a church. One, that they'll think you're boring. But two, that they won't apply what you're teaching. Because if all I do is transfer information to you, and you listen to it and enjoy it, but do nothing with it, there is no point in me going to the work that transfer what I know to you. The information is worth nothing unless it's put into practice. We see that in the book of James, that's Jesus' little brother, and he writes that you should not simply be hearers of the word, and so fool yourselves, you have to be doers as well. 
You have to do something with it. This author knows that. And as we begin right now to read the verses in the second half of Hebrews 10, he says, enough is enough. I've told you enough. Are you going to do it? I've told you Jesus is greater than that old foundation. Are you going to build on Jesus? Because you know now, you know better, you know that he came to replace all of that. What are you going to do, church? What are you going to do? So we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 10 at verse 19, and we're going to begin to read together. So grab your Bible, turn to Hebrews. Let's start at verse 19. The author says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. He's moving into the call to action, but first he repeats everything that he's told them so far. Just like a good pastor at the end of the sermon, what does he do? Repeat, 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 over and over, right? We have to drive the point home. People won't remember what we say unless we say it six times. So we say it over and over. The pastor, in these first three verses, repeats what he's just told them throughout the whole book. Jesus made a way to God's throne room. Jesus' body is the sacrifice to get through the barrier of sin, through the curtain, into the most holy place. He's the great high priest ushering us right to the Father. Now that we know that, here's the call to action. All right, let's read verses 22 on to 25. The author says, let us draw near. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I love that the beginning of his call to action is a drawing close to God. This is something they were not able to do before. So appreciate, appreciate the contrast between the old foundation and the new. You see, for 2,000 years, they had no concept of drawing near to God. They were always separated from God. There was always sin. There was always a curtain. There was always a high priesthood, right? A priesthood of Aaron in the way. They never got to commune with God. God. But now this this author says we have a heart that is sincere, faith that is assured. Why? Because our hearts have been cleansed of guilt and our bodies have been washed. We've been made clean on the inside and clean on the outside. Inside and out. Something that the blood of a lamb and a goat and a bull could never do. Jesus has changed us completely. And that's the assurance that we have that we can draw right near to our Father now. Coming right up to him with confidence. So do that. And the hope that we have, verse 23, we can hold on to that hope unswervingly 
because Jesus keeps his promises. So we don't have to live in fear that at some point we're going to be separated from him again. Our confidence in Jesus, if you look back to the book of Romans, we're more than conquerors now. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. The curtain isn't going to be re-sown separating us from him. The Holy Spirit has been placed inside of us, a seal and a guarantee. God has made us the tabernacle, the dwelling place of the Most High. God's moved in. He's not going anywhere. But as a church, here's the call to action. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Now, I haven't spurred a lot of people before, but anyone who knows how to spur, you know that when you have spurs on the back of your boots, it requires a good kick. Spurring requires a good, sturdy boot and a good, hard kick. The author is saying we need to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. We can't stop meeting together. Some people are in the habit of not meeting together anymore. We know during the persecution of the Roman Empire during this time, and especially when the Caesars are going to change and Nero comes into control, it was the most vicious persecution they ever faced. And we know that living in a Jewish community, but being a follower of Jesus, who they believed was a false messiah, they would have faced rejection in their home communities as Jewish people. They were facing persecution on all fronts. The temptation would have been to walk away. The temptation would have been to quit meeting together, to stay home, to be safe. The author says we can't quit. We have to keep spurring one another on. We have to be the church. We have to be the church. I see that in our church. I saw that yesterday when Kevin and Brenda pulled up to my house. I saw that the day before when Rachel Lyson pulled up to our house. People are being the church. They are spurring one another on to love and good deeds. They're continuing to encourage one another all the more as the day approaches. You should be proud of yourselves. As a church, so many of you are being exactly what the author has challenged and called you to be, an encouragement, an agent of love and good deeds. So continue to do that. Continue to find ways to love one another. But this isn't just a bed of roses. The author has a stern warning for his church. That if they accept this knowledge of Jesus and do nothing with it, that punishment and pain will be their reward. This is sobering. Let's read together. We're going to read 26 to 31. And then we're going to go to the book of Matthew for a minute and look at the words of Jesus. But this author says this in verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy, on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who is treated as an unholy thing 
the blood of the covenant that sanctified them and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him. We know him who said it is mine to avenge and I will repay. And again the Lord will judge his people. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You see, a good pastor loves his church and is willing to warn them when he's scared for them. All of these people building their homes, building their lives like a house on this foundation, they had to know that building on the old foundation, especially after they had this knowledge of Jesus, was simply leading them to death. Anyone in the Old Testament who abandoned the law of Moses, who decided to live apart from that, Their dead bodies can be found in the desert, in the wilderness. Their bones are in the sand. That's what happened to people who rejected the law that Moses delivered from God. And this author says, you think you were scared of Moses' law and the punishment that God had for people that disobeyed? God offered his most treasured possession, his one and only son, and you spit on him? You spit on his sacrifice? He offers you his Holy Spirit to dwell inside of you and you reject that spirit of grace? You know all of this. You've you've heard us teach this book. You've received this knowledge and you want nothing to do with it? Then there is no sacrifice left to cover your sin. If you reject the spotless lamb of Jesus, then you can take all the sheep you want to the temple, to the tabernacle. You You can bleed them out and you can burn their fat. You can do whatever you want. There is no sacrifice that will cover your sin apart from the sacrifice of Jesus. There's only punishment waiting. He didn't say this to his church because he hated them. He said this to his church because he needed them to know you cannot live your life with one foot on one foundation and one on the other. You can't build a house half on one foundation and then span over into the neighbor's lot and build half the house on the other foundation. It doesn't work like that. This week as I read this passage, it so reminded me of Jesus' words in Matthew. You see, even as I get Sunday school ready this week for the teenagers, we're going through the book of James. And James constantly challenges us to have deeds along with our faith. If we have faith, there must be fruit. We have to live out what we know. And if we know it and don't live it out, then there's no point in knowing it in the first place. Jesus said the same thing. He was preaching this sermon to a whole bunch of people on a mountainside. He walked through how his promise to them, his law, his new covenant, was far superior to Moses' one. You remember the sermon on the mountain? He said, when it comes to murder, I'm not just concerned with the external action, it's internal action that I'm worried about. When it comes to hatred and judging, when it comes to fasting, when it comes to prayer, when it comes to your treasure... He says, Moses commanded you what to do externally. I'm concerned with your heart. That's what I'm watching. That's what the new law is concerning. Jesus shares this in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 7. And he ends with these words. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice 
It's like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Built his house on the sand. The author is saying, these words have been given to you. I've explained the Old Testament, and I've explained how Jesus is greater. But now it's up to the church. How will you build your house? What foundation will you build it on? But it won't be easy. You're going to experience storms. Let's keep reading in Hebrews chapter 10. This is verse 32 now. The author says to his church, remember those earlier days. Remember after you received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. Remember at other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. Remember you suffered along with those who were in prison and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Why? Because you knew. You knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Don't throw away your confidence. Sometimes, as a pastor, I hear from people, and they're doubting God. There's resentment, there's bitterness towards God, and it stems from the storms. See, I'm guilty of this too. There's moments in my life when I'm convinced that because of my love for God and God's love for me, that I should be immune from the storms of life. And that when a storm comes into my life, regardless of what it is, somehow it's God's fault. Somehow he's to blame for the storm going on. Regardless of what it is. Right? Whether it's my family, my kids, my job, my wife, my my finances, my reputation, my pride. Whatever it is. And if something comes into that, if something disrupts that, then it's his fault. Because I've done my part. I've been good. And if I've been good and he promises to be good, why has this storm entered my life? God must not be good. God must not be listening. So we read and we pray and we come to church and we sit in these seats and we sing these songs and we shake people's hands and then another storm comes into our life. And we can't believe it. We're blown away. How could God care this little about us? I do everything. I do the actions. I'm a part of this. And yet God lets another storm enter my life? How could we believe in a God like that? How could we believe in a God like that? There's no hope in a God like that. Remember those words from the book of Matthew that Jesus spoke? The ones that we just referenced from the end of the Sermon on the Mountain. He said that anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. When the rains come and the waters rise and the wind pounds against your house, it will not fall. But anyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a fool builds his house on sand. And when the rains come and the waters rise and the wind crashes against your house, it'll fall. 
Do you notice the similarity between both of their houses? What is it? Say it out loud right now. You know what it is. They both faced the same storms. Both of them. It doesn't say that the wise man built his house on Jesus' words and the storms never came. What does it say? That the wise man built his house, his life on Jesus, and he was able to weather every storm. So stop this and break this attitude and this habit of blaming God for the storms in your life. He never promised to buffer those from hitting your house. He promised to be the foundation of your house. So lean on him. You're anchored in him. These people lost everything. And the pastor is calling them to continue being the church. To continue to rely on Jesus. They visited their friends in prison. They went to jail for being Christian. They lost their possessions, but it didn't bother them because their treasure was in heaven, even if they lost all their wealth. They lost their public reputations. They were persecuted and insulted publicly. And yet they knew that if they lost it all, their home was still built on eternal rock. They had nothing to lose, so they weren't afraid to lose everything. And we sit in these seats and read our Bibles and think God owes us everything. Shame on me for the times that I've had that attitude. In the book of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mountain, Jesus gives this example of these people that are going to stand before him one day. They're going to stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, look at the Christian life that I lived. And he's going to say to them, what do you mean? I don't know you. They say, no, no, no. I perform miracles and I cast out demons. I did the Christian things. I was a part of this ministry. I was active in it. I participated in it. I was there. Jesus says to them, I didn't know you. I didn't know you. Away from me. I don't know who you are. Why would Jesus tell this story? Just to scare the people that day? to make them doubt the assurance of their salvation? Why would he tell them that certain people will stand before him one day and he'll cast them aside? Because the participation in the activities isn't what he desires. He wants to know you. It's relationship. He wants you to build your life upon his foundation, not participate in the games. Right? He wants you to step through the curtain. He ripped the curtain in half. He died and gave up his life so the curtain could be opened. So that you could have right relationship with the Father. Something for 2,000 years they couldn't imagine in the Old Testament. And you have that opportunity. And people are going to stand outside of the curtain and say, no, no, I don't need to enter in. I'll come to church and sing the songs and shake hands. That'll be enough. And he's like, step through the curtain. God's right there. Have relationship with him. Trust in him. Be active in this. Know him. No, it's easier just to shake hands and sing. I don't know who you are. I don't know who you are. Before the author gets into chapter 11, he needs to finish the last few verses here in 10, warning his people not to shrink backwards, but to have faith. 
Why does he do this right before launching into chapter 11? Well, chapter 11 is a collection of the heroes of the Old Testament. But the only reason they're considered heroes in this author's mind is because of their faith. Because they were men and women of faith, not because of their action. Look at their faith. They're regarded as heroes in God's eyes, as righteous men and women. People that faced incredible pain. People that fell into incredible sin. And yet God knew them and they knew God. These people are to be the encouragement. These people are supposed to be the examples that this church in the New Testament looks at and says, I can keep going. I can keep going and not give up. Because if Moses could keep going and not give up, I can. And if Noah could keep going and not give up, I can too. Verse 35, and then to the end of chapter 10 of Hebrews, the author says, do not throw away your confidence. Your confidence will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you'll receive what he's promised. And now a couple Old Testament quotes. He says, for in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And but my righteous one will live by faith. I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed. We belong to those who have faith and are saved. The words of the author to the church. I've shown you the new foundation. I've shown you how it's so much more superior. I don't, know, I don't know how to phrase it in a way that just it helps you understand. You go from complete hopelessness to eternal hope. Like it's so much greater. And he lays out this entire foundation. And he says, I want you to build your life on that foundation. You can come right up to God because you have been completely cleansed. But if you know all of this, if you've received all this information and yet you reject it, choose not to live on it, then God will not know you. And there's nothing but pain waiting for you. And I know that it's hard, he says. You face conflict all the time. The Christian life is incredibly hard. But if you build your life on him, you will weather these storms and make it out the other side. We do not belong to those who shrink back. We belong to those who have faith. And those who have faith are those who are saved. In the Old Testament story that I shared last week, this young man goes to get the sheep. He brings the sheep to his dad and they take it to the tabernacle. Dad lays his hand on its head and looks the sheep in the eyes and the sheep looks back at him. Transfer of guilt has taken place. The sheep must die in the place of dad. But next week, another sheep would have to die again in the place of dad over and over and over. Hopelessness. And then God offered his greatest treasure so that you and me and Nick and everyone else in this church would never have to take another sheep to the altar ever again, ever, 
ever again. And he's offered all of that to us if we'll choose to be the church, if we'll choose to spur one another on, if we'll choose to build our house on the rock and not the sand. Where are you building your house? During this sermon, I asked you to imagine your house. I imagined, I asked you to imagine what it looked like, what material it was made of, what size it was. See, the joke's on you, because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the size of the material, what does it look like, what color it is, it doesn't matter. What foundation is it on? Because that's the only thing that matters. You can build out of logs or build out of Lego blocks, I don't care. What foundation are you building your life on? Rock or sand? You choose.